welcome to the Poet to Poet series. I'm your host, Dina Serrano. Today's guest is Sarah Cooper, the publisher and founder of Cubana Books. Sarah Cooper has brought Cuban women writers to the attention of the English-speaking world through Cubana Books. She's a professor at Cal State University in Chico. Sarah Cooper is also a remarkable reader of the work she publishes, reflecting a deep understanding and appreciation of the Cuban women writers' work. Today, she'll bring to life the stories of Adela Barr and Maria Elena Yana. Welcome, Sarah Cooper. Please set up for us Adela Barr's story. This short story, titled Early Morning, is a, a very disturbing story, actually, that has been quite controversial. And as you will see, a young woman finds herself in a very difficult situation, but it's not exactly how it seems at the beginning. Early Morning. Snoring. Low. Rhythmic. Regular. Unmistakable. There is someone snoring right next to her. She ought to open her eyes, but she squeezes them tight. Her heart contracts along with her eyes. For an eternal second, her whole body freezes. Then the tightness in her chest forces her to breathe again, to try to expel with this breath some of the fear that has filled her and it's stabbing out from beneath her skin. The snoring goes on, unchanged. Blessed virgin, she thinks, though she doesn't believe in virgins. Breathe. Force yourself to think. Or better, to wake up. Because this has to be a nightmare. But her dreams have no such soundtrack, or, or do they? She tries to recall dialogue or music in any of her most memorable dreams, but this only convinces her that she must be awake with someone snoring alongside her. By now, she's broken out in a cold sweat, and what was dizziness threatens to become nausea. She concentrates on keeping completely still. No matter how hard she tries, any movement could interrupt the snoring. This someone, as yet only an announced presence, could wake up. Her terror does not translate into logical thoughts, only into the instinct to stay still, to wait. If she waits long enough, maybe day will dawn. That's an idea to cling to. It brings some relief and enough clarity for her to take note of her stupidity. Now, the snoring is absolutely real, goes on, quiet and unhurried, with a regularity that suggests habit. This someone exists right here at her side in her bed and will also wake with the dawn. And then what will she do? Who would hear her cries for help? There's no one home but her. And the doors and windows are barred, so how could the neighbors get in, even if they were able to hear her yell? A perfectly audible sob escapes her. The snoring shifts and breaks. She bites her lips to restrain a scream while her heart pumps wildly and its beating seems to echo off the walls. 
She curls up like a newborn longing to return to the womb. After a few seconds, there's a throat clearing sound and the slow snoring returns. Her body relaxes as the sound goes on. Her head is spinning and without meaning to, she opens her eyes. Faint glints of light bounce off the Kauba Wood Bureau. It's a familiar sight from waking during the night to go to the bathroom. To the right, she would see the jumble of clothes hanging from the hook on the wall, but she doesn't dare look because it always gives the impression of a person standing alongside the bureau. She doesn't feel she can stand that image even knowing it to be false. If she stretched out a little, she'd see the night table holding a lamp that stopped working some time ago. Even if it functioned, she wouldn't try to turn it on now. All her muscles are frozen. If she could do anything at all, it would be to roll out of bed and drag herself to the bathroom, which has a slide bolt on its door. Locked in there, she could scream, call out, to whom? She finds that she can't remember her neighbor's names, nor even her own. Fear, a giant hand is strangling her. God, God, that's all she manages to think. But deep down, she knows it means nothing, for God will not come to her aid. Mama, she thinks, if this were a childhood nightmare, her mother would wake her up, wrap her in her hug. But her mother is dead. And she is not asleep. Wow. And how does it turn out? Well, when he wakes up. The snorer. The snorer. There's nothing she can do to stop him. Stop him from what? From taking her. From raping her. Even as she fights. And kicks out. And at the very end of the story... She realizes this is the man that sleeps next to her every night. And the worst thing about it all is that she's going to have to go through this over and over again and still wash his dirty clothes hanging on the hook in the wall. And this story is controversial because? Because, well, anywhere... But especially in Cuba, domestic violence and partner rape, rape within a marriage is often not considered to be so. It's considered to be a conjugal right. And here this woman feels, she feels so estranged from this man that she doesn't even know him. And yet she has no other recourse but to continue to fulfill her duties. Nobody to hear her. Nobody to intervene. But of course, with the new laws that have come in around gender equality and transgenders, that's beginning to change a little. I think more and more women are getting the idea that, yes, they can speak up. It's been one of those very silenced self-censorship issues. I guess that's all over the world, even right here. Exactly. Well, what a powerful writer Aida Bar is. Yes. What other books have you been publishing since we last met? 
One of the other books is also a collection of short stories. These short stories are by a writer named Maria Elena Yana. And Maria Elena Yana is actually a journalist and has been a journalist for decades. She was posted in many, many countries abroad. She lived in Mexico. She lived on the African continent, other places in Latin America, and reported, reported the news for most of the major periodicals and radio stations in Havana. And does this journalistic background and in-depth knowledge of other places come out in her literary work? It does. And this particular book, it's called An Address in Havana, uh, Domicilio Habanero, of course bilingual because all of the books are bilingual. This one traces her trajectory a little bit. There's a few short stories from various of her published books of short stories. And so in this book, I think her journalist background comes out in a couple of ways. In one way, it comes out in attention to minute detail. She really has a way of capturing an environment, an ambiance of a setting. And secondly, she's been very, very interested in the psychology of the characters because she's interested in people. What she says is that she likes to observe and then speculate. Based on her observations, she comes up with new entire worlds. So when is the setting? It's in Havana, but at what time? So... Many of them would happen in the 1980s and 1990s, although a couple of them are actually set centuries ago. One is set simultaneously on two planes, one during the Marielle boat lift and the other back in colonial times. But the majority are within the first few decades of the revolution. And she's particularly interested in those families of the upper class who stayed in Cuba. They didn't go, but in a way they didn't stay either. They kept their old perspectives, the old bourgeois tendencies, but they're living in a world that is strange to them. And therefore, that brings in its own level of fantasy. And the story you're going to read from today? I would like to read the beginning of two stories. They're quite different. The first one, I think, will be very self-explanatory once I start it. And it's called In the Family. When my mother discovered that the enormous oval living room mirror was inhabited, we didn't believe her. Then we were astonished. And finally, after some contemplation, we got used to the idea. The fact that the age-spotted oval glass reflected the family's dearly departed was not enough to upset our daily routine. One does not air one's dirty laundry in public, so we kept the secret to ourselves, after all. It wasn't anybody else's business. At any rate, it took some time before each of us would feel absolutely comfortable sitting down in our favorite chair, knowing that someone else was in the same chair in the mirror. It could be my grandmother's sister Aurelia, rest in peace 1939, for example, or even if my cousin Natalie was sitting next to me. Across from her, we'd see my mother's Uncle Nicholas, R.I.P. 1927. As could have been expected, our dead relatives mirrored the image of a family gathering almost identical to our own. Nothing 
the decor, the layout of the room, and the furniture, the light. Absolutely nothing had changed. The only difference, they were on the other side. I can't speak for the others, but for me, rather than a mirror image, it was more like seeing a worn-out movie, gritty and clouded. Their efforts to copy our gestures were slower, restrained, as if the mirror were not truly showing an exact image, but the reflection of some other reflection. From the very beginning, I figured things would get more complicated when Cousin Clara returned from vacation. Lively and ambitious, audacious and determined, Clara gave me the impression she'd landed in this family by mistake. A suspicion somewhat bolstered by her having become the first woman dentist in the country. But I was wrong. The idea she might have been with us in error disappeared the moment she hung up her diploma and sat down to embroidered bedsheets alongside my grandmother, aunts, and other cousins, and to wait for a suitable suitor to show up. And bows there were. But there was always something or other wrong with them. Nobody ever really knew exactly what. Although she never actually practiced her real profession, Clara became the family oracle once she graduated. She'd prescribed painkillers and was the authority on fashion. She chose which shows to see at the theater and decided when Punch had just the right amount of liquor for every party. Given all her responsibilities, it was fitting she take a month off every year to rest at the beach. That summer, when she heard what my mother had found, Clara paused, thinking. It was as if she was considering symptoms before making a diagnosis. She leaned in toward the mirror, saw it was true, and cocked her head skeptically. Then she went immediately to her chair next to the bookcase and craned her neck to see who was sitting on the other side. Gosh, look at Gustavo, was all she said. There in that very same chair sat Gus, some sort of godson of dad's. He'd come to live with us after a flood in his own town. He stayed on in the somewhat ambiguous position of adopted uncle or family handyman. Distractedly fixing a radio tube or something, Gus did not return Clara's very democratic and enthusiastic wave. Surely the mirror people weren't going out of their way to be sociable. This must have hurt Clara's pride, but she did not let on. Naturally, the idea of moving the mirror to the dining room was hers. And so was its sequel pulling the big table up close so we could all sit together for meals. Mother worried that all the fuss would upset the mirror people or run them off, but everything went fine. I must admit, it was comforting to sit at the table every day and see so many faces from the family. Not all were familiar, however. Some of those on the other side were distant relatives and others, due to their lengthy, although unintentional, absence, were almost strangers. In all, we were about 20 seated at the table. Even if their gestures seemed more remote than ours and their meals a little washed out, we generally gave the impression of being one big happy family. As you said, that one speaks for itself. 
And so suffice it to say that Clara continues to stir up trouble until she makes it to the other side. Ah, very interesting, very intriguing. So this other story is equally in the realm of fantasy, but it's something that we might have thought about ourselves. It takes the idea of the doppelganger and explores it a little bit in what passes for modern-day Havana. Although, because of Havana's particular situation with the embargo and scarcity of materials, they actually often still have dial telephones, which comes up in this story. So this story is called The Two of Us. I dreamt the telephone company came to change my number. Wonderful, I said, because someone keeps dialing a wrong number all day long. And someone else, who knows who, calls every Saturday at 3 a.m. on the dot. Well, they couldn't have cared less about my happiness. They changed the number and that was that. So, instead of looking at the phone, I asked, What is the new number? To make conversation. 2058. A fog, something incoherent, more fog. I wake up and go through the usual routine, eat breakfast, brush my teeth, make the bed, a day like any other, without knowing why, you never know exactly why, a digit appeared in my brain, lulled by the softness of the noontime hour. Twenty. Hmm, a slightly perplexed expression. Twenty. A fog. Something incoherent. More fog. Twenty, fifty-eight. A smile. That's it. Twenty, fifty-eight. To satisfied infantile curiosity, I immediately make a fatal move. Picking up the phone. Click, click. Click, 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 click. An opaque, far-off ring. Someone lifts the receiver. Despite the winding length of the line, the voice comes through smoothly and clearly. Strangely close and familiar. Hello? Uh, what number have I called? With whom do you wish to speak? Uh, is this 2058? Yes. That voice, that, that voice. <sighs> Never mind, it's, it's, it's just a joke. Let's go on. If that is supposed to be my new number, I'll ask to speak to myself. With so-and-so. This is she. Naturally, a bit of a shock, an unavoidable reaction, a moment of hesitation, an incoherent idea, but now without the fog. Insistence on the other end. Uh, yes, I'm here. Who is this? Utter confusion. My own image returned. There must be a way out of this. Nothing occurs to me other than the truth. Which I say, not without trepidation, uh, it's me, so-and-so. She could have hung up. 
She could have said anything. She could have said nothing. She could have spoken in Coptic. But she actually said what she never should have said. Ah, you've called at last. That's an amazing story by Maria Elena Jana. And I wondered why you read it with a somewhat southern accent, because you had placed her in Havana. As I went through the process of editing and getting these books ready for publication, I read them so many times. I felt like I was getting to know the characters. And this character just seemed so like many of the women I knew back in Texas. I'm from Texas. And I could not help but think of her speaking in that particular cadence and register. And for some reason, as a Texan, it seemed to me to be a sort of southern story. That kind of thing could happen there, just like it could happen in Havana. And were you the translator of this story? No, no. The translator of these stories in this collection is Barbara Reese. She's a professor of Spanish at Allegheny College and an incredible translator. She also was the translator of a book called Puppet that came out in bilingual format. Also by Cubana Books? No, this is one that came out by Arte Publico Press. Oh, University of Arizona. Yes, I believe so. Well, those two stories were just amazing. Thank you, Sarah Cooper, for sharing this wonderful work being written in Cuba today by these remarkable writers, Adela Bar and Maria Elena Yana. We here in California will have the opportunity to hear Cuban writer and journalist Maria Elena Yana in person on her U.S. tour on November 7th when she will appear at the Oakland Public Library's Cesar Chavez branch by the Fruitvale BART station. Maria Elena will be reading from her work in a bilingual presentation from 2 p.m. to 3.30. She'll also perform at Cal State University in Chico on November 8th and 9th. To order books in English by several contemporary Cuban women writers, go to cubanabooks.org, and that's November 7th at the Oakland Public Library Cesar Chavez branch by the Fruitvale BART station to hear Maria Elena Yana in person. some exciting news to share with listeners to Poet to Poet here on KPFA. 
I have just finished my first novel, Nicaragua Way. Yes, at age 81. To be published this winter of 2016 by Estuary Press. Am I excited? Oh, yes. If you'd like to stay informed or be invited to the book party, please let me know by going to my website, ninaserrano.com. Send me your email addresses. Come and celebrate with me and hear excerpts from Nicaragua Way. Thank you. The following poems are written and read by me, Nina Serrano. Today I'm going to be reading you some poems that I wrote in Cuba, all in different decades, beginning with the 1960s. On an island sometimes, there is no water. Every day at 7 a.m., the faucets in Maria Rosa's apartment sing with water. Her tub fills, her buckets babble, water to cool her body, clean her house, make café con leche. Every day at 11 a.m., the water's song is silent, though the ocean roars. This next poem is about the hurricane season. The winds grow stronger even in the heat. The waves break against the seawall and splash onto the street. Palm trees' branches point in one direction. Litter and leaves fly together. My hair, like the palm leaves, blows in one direction. Rainy season, Havana. The rain floods the street so quickly. I hear thunder, see sudden pink in a cloudy sky, reflected in the puddled street below. The flash is gone. There is only the dark and the damp sweat in the wet rain. Winter, Havana. Love, I tremble in your hurricane. Tonight the strong winds brought you to my house and blew my firm ideas to dancing leaves. Love, are you that phantom breeze making my teeth chatter, storming this tempest in my heart? Love, I tremble in your hurricane. The Open-Eyed Sun the open-eyed sun stares down on me, burning pores open for water. There is only relentless sun. Chapea el monte, cultiva el llano, de pobre 
has been Nina Sverno with Jill Montgomery for the Poet to Poet series. Please check out my website, ninaserrano.com, to hear other programs, poems, and a listing of my upcoming events. Thanks for listening. This is a statement from a local station board candidate. The views expressed are not those of KPFA management or staff. My name is T.M. Scruggs, listener candidate for the KPFA local station board. I'm an educator, musician, and longtime social activist. I speak Spanish and have volunteered at community radio stations in the U.S. and Latin America. Everywhere, I've seen the importance of locally controlled, independent source for news and analysis and for music and cultural connection. I am a co-founder of TheRealNews.com and work with TruthOut.org. Both are Internet-based. KPFA and Pacifica can strengthen its use of the Internet and new technologies. And a top priority is to rescue our stations from their current financial mess and lack of transparency. I share the commitment to non-commercial, community-based broadcasting of the UCR slate of candidates available at UnitedForCommunityRadio.org. Gracias por la atención prestada.